Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 15. And so I'm going to sort of lay out what we're about to see, and then we'll read it, and then we'll unpack it together and see if we can see it. Uh, So uh, we've been introduced to Absalom. He is the son of David so far. Uh, We don't know much about him except that he's ridiculously good-looking and he apparently has mostly good hair days. Um, The other things we know about him aren't as good. We know he's a murderer. He killed his own brother. Uh, We know he's a liar. Uh, He's lied to his father already. Uh, We know that he's a manipulator. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he doesn't, it doesn't bother him to take things into his own hands. He burns down his next-door neighbor's fields just so that his neighbor will come and have a conversation with him. I don't encourage that, by the way. If you are reaching out to your neighbors, you know, it's good to reach out. Don't burn down their lawn just to get them to come out of their house and chat with you. They probably won't come to church with you if you do that. He's, he's intentionally held up to us as really an, a person who is against God. I mean, he is, uh, in one sense, uh, he's against the king, the anointed king, uh, God's appointed king, David. Now, it happens to be his own father, but what we have in this passage is we get to see here, you see Absalom and David, and you see, whatever you think of David, David is the rightfully anointed king of Israel. God has anointed David to be the king. He is the anointed one. And here's this person who is setting himself up against the Lord's anointed. He is saying, if, if he had a bumper sticker, it would say, not my king. Uh, but it's not just that he's waiting for the next election. Uh, he doesn't just want a different king. He wants to be king himself. And so we will see that in this passage, and we'll see this proud usurper in the first third of the chapter, and then uh, the humble king in the second two-thirds of the chapter. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Second Samuel 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him, call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in 
Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Giloch. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you a wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. 
And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as I said, uh, we're going to look at this in two sections. Um, I don't know if uh, experimenting with two points instead of three points will shorten the sermon or not. Uh, We'll find out at the end, won't we? So first we've got the proud usurper. Again, we were told in in chapter 14 that uh, Absalom is ridiculously good looking. He's head to toe good looking. Uh, He's he's pretty impressed with himself. cuts his hair once a year and weighs it so that all the world can see uh, how much his beautiful locks of hair weigh. They weigh out about five pounds uh, every year. He's a, he's a pretty conceited fellow, impressed. He, uh, I would imagine that had there been hashtags then, Absalom would have been the one who would have invented hashtag woke up like this. Uh, he it wasn't so bad that he was ridiculously good-looking. It was The problem was that he thought he was ridiculously good-looking. And so uh, he, he gets himself a brand-new chariot with horses, gets an entourage of 50 men to run alongside and in front of his chariot. Everywhere he goes, there's 50 men running before his chariot. I imagine they prob- maybe they had you know, dark sunglasses on. Maybe they had curly, cute little wires coming down from their ears. Maybe they talked into their cuffs as Absalom, the number one, is approaching. Number one is approaching, and they're running along. You can, you can see what this would look like, even in your mind's eye. A chariot, this open chariot, so it's not a carriage, and so, you know, you need an open chariot when you have locks, like, flowing behind you uh, so that people can see as your hair whips. I wanted to bring the, the Prince Charming Shrek meme, like, when he takes off his helmet and his, and his slow-motion hair just flows. You can go home and watch that, and that's, that's Absalom for you, Prince Charming from Shrek. And, I mean, it's an intentional interruption everywhere he goes. It's, it's meant to inspire awe. You're, you're supposed to look and be impressed. It, it interrupts everything. It looks like a royal procession, and that's what it's supposed to look like. So he's, so he's using this 
technique to, to elevate himself in the eyes of the people. He's, here's this beautiful man. He looks so royal. He looks so majestic. Fifty men running before him. And then beyond that, he offers empty words of encouragement and empty words of discouragement to God's people. He discourages them in their relationship to the king and encourages them that, you know, if I were in charge, I would care for you. You know, he just, he talks to them, hey, where are you from? And he listens, and it's interesting, everyone he spoke to, he said, you, you have got a really good case. Now think about that. You can't say that to everyone. Technically, you can only say that to half the people that come before the king because half of them are bringing a case against the other half. And so he's really just, these are empty words. And he's saying, you know, you, you've got a really good case, but man, there's, there's such a backlog. You, you will never get a hearing. I mean, if, if I were a judge... I mean, if I were put in charge, I would fix all this bureaucracy and all this red tape. I would make sure that you would get a hearing and, and it would go well for you. But, I mean, my hands are tied just like yours. thing is, he's lying about the access they would have to the king. We see that even last week. Some random widow from a no-name town is able to come straight to the king's presence with her concern. Now, she invented the concern. She's not actually a widow from Tekoa, but she came right into the king's presence. And so he's lying. He's making it sound worse than it is. And he's saying, you know, I, I could do better than the king is doing. I could do this for you. He gives empty promises and undermining sympathy to the people. And it's really empty promises. I mean, he doesn't really do anything. And technically, he can't do anything more than the king could do. He's just saying, you know, he's doing it poorly. I mean, I don't really have a better answer, but I know he's doing it wrong. You know, there are people like that. And I hope and pray that you would not be one of those people, like hiding behind the gift of discernment. Like, I can see everything you're doing wrong. I mean, I don't have an answer for you, but I can tell what you're doing is wrong. Uh, I will tell you, years ago in the long past history of hope of Christ. Uh, there was a person who, uh, it seemed at every meeting, they had a concern about how much, uh, how much I, and specifically how much Amy was doing. And they would constantly be saying, the pastor's wife should not be doing these things. The pastor's wife should not be doing all of this. And it always came across as like concern for, you know, putting too much burden on the pastor's wife. And yet, Month after month after month, it was said, and I realized, like, never was it followed up with, so I'll do it. It was simply criticism of what people were doing without any offer to help or to lift any of the burden. Absalom is simply offering empty criticism of what David is doing. And he, he's able to say, I would have done so much better. Every, every judgment that comes down, he says, oh, I could have done that. Oh, I would have done better than that. Oh, he gave you this much, I would have given you this much. Oh, if you, I could have totally taken care of you for this. And if elevating himself to kingly status 
and then empty promises aren't enough to sway God's people, then he would, he would pull out uh, the next piece and he would remind them, I'm just, I'm just a guy just like you. You know, they would come and here's the prince. Uh, he's, he's the prince. He's the son of the king. And people would come to pay homage, homage. I still don't know how to say that word. And it's all throughout this book. Uh, they'd come and pay homage. Is it homage? All right. Thanks. We're going to stick with that then. Uh, they would, and they'd come and get ready to bow to him, and, and he'd grab them by the hand. He'd say, oh, get up. You don't have to bow to me. And he'd pull them into a big kiss, and he'd say, I'm just one of you. And he'd loosen his tie and roll. Oh, my sleeves are rolled up. That's embarrassing. And he would, and he would just, he'd be like, no, I'm, a, I'm like you. And, and he, would, he would make sure that his, he'd put a hard hat on, but make sure his hair was still out and flowing, and some in the front and some in the back. But he would, and he'd be like, no, we could, we could let's, let's go get a, Big Mac and a Bud Light, you and me. I'm, I'm just a person like you. He would, he would try to convince the people that he's just, he's just a man of the people. And it worked. And slowly, maybe not even that slowly, some were impressed with his royal procession and some were impressed with his wonderful promises and some were impressed that he was just a man's man. He was just one of us. And slowly he turned the hearts of Israel away from David. And then his final kind of sprinkling was he added a little bit of religiousness. Added a little religiosity to it all. You know, I want to make sure that they understand, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a godly man too. Maybe you've, you've heard a couple of, of leaders recently define themselves as devout Catholics. I'm a devout Catholic. And, and although the devout Catholic doesn't take into account any of uh, most of the Catholic theology and ethics, uh, they've deci- they're self-proclaimed devout. And, and this, is, this is Absalom. He's, he's self-proclaiming his devotion to God. He says, hey, hey, Dad, can I, I need to go to Hebron. I need to pay my vows to God because when I was in Jeshur, remember when I was in Jeshur and you hated me and you wouldn't let me come back? Yeah, those were some rough times. Well, anyway, when I was there, I vowed to God, if, if you will receive me, if you will let me come back to Jerusalem, I will, I will worship you. Literally, in Hebrew, he says, I will serve the Lord. So if God will bring me back to Jerusalem, I will serve the Lord. He'll be dedicated to the Lord. And David's, I mean, this is an answer to prayer. I mean, what, what parent doesn't hear their child, their adult child, who seems to have been wandering for years, come back and say, I want to serve the Lord, Dad. I mean, David's like, yes, go in peace. He gets 200 unsuspecting people to go with him. Like, they're not even aware of the conspiracy. They're just, oh, well, we'll go worship with, with Absalom. And so he continues this charade of religious piety. He's probably posing for the cameras as he's making his sacrifices. There is one person fully aware who goes uh, in full knowledge of what he's doing, Ahithophel. We're told he's one of David's closest and trusted advisors. Uh, He's so trusted that in chapter 16, 
Uh, chapter 16 will explain to us that then when Ahithophel gave counsel, it was received as if God himself were speaking. That's how trusted this advisor was. And so this conspiracy grows, support for Absalom increases until uh, it can't be ignored anymore. We're told that he sent messengers out into the various tribes. The word for messengers is the same word uh, for the two men that uh, Joshua sent into the promised land, spies. He sent spies into the promised land to see about taking the land. These are the messengers that Absalom sends into the land to see about taking the land. And at the signal, they would all decree, de- declare Absalom is king in Hebron. It's a politically brilliant move because as Saul is uh, killed on the battlefield, the first place that David goes to install his kingship is Hebron. He's in Hebron first before he goes to Jerusalem. And so Absalom goes to Hebron to establish himself as the new king. And so things are getting worse and worse, and now Absalom is on his way to Jerusalem to take the kingship for good. And the rest of the passage really focuses on David's response to all of this. And it's really, uh, it's a very humble response. You know, we look at it and we think, well, he's, he's running away. But his running away is because of his shepherd's heart. He's running away in order to avoid bloodshed. Yes, he's saying, like, he says in part, listen, if they come, they're going to, we'll be stuck in the city when they get here, and, and it'll be a massacre. But he also, he's concerned for the sword being turned against all of Jerusalem. Innocent people will die if we are found here in Jerusalem when Absalom gets here. He cares for the innocent. I love the response of his servants. We are ready to do whatever my Lord the King decides. It says they stop at the last house in Jerusalem. Why are we told that? I think it's so that you can get a picture of David's shepherd's heart. Because from inside Jerusalem to the gate, he's in the lead. He's leading them. And when they get to the gate, to the last house in Jerusalem, David stops and makes sure everyone gets out safely. David stays and lets everyone pass by ahead of him. There's a a heart David has for his people still. So we see, first he lets his, his guard, his bodyguard go by, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And then even foreigners, these Gittites from Gath, these are Philistines from Gath who had been following David and had come and committed themselves to the God of Israel. And they passed by, including uh, a Gittite named Ittai in verses 19 to 20. And David, David says to him, hey, you need to go back. I mean, you don't need to come with me. Go back and serve the king. I mean, you, you just got here. You're, you're an exile from your own land already, and now you're going to go with me? And I don't know where I'm going. I'm going to make you a wanderer? No, you should go back. And he says to him, may the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord be with you. I mean, it's not that he's trying to get rid of him. He really is caring about this man, and the man says no. 
He won't have any of it. He says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives. He says, you are my king, David. There is no other king. He gives us all in commitment. I am with you, whether for death or for life. I will follow you, whether I'm following you into death or following you into life. And one small indicator that he was totally all in and following David is that this little throwaway statement of, so when David said, okay, go ahead. So he and his men and all his little ones. I mean, Ittai didn't tell his family, stay here, you'll be safe. It'll be safer in Jerusalem. I don't know when we're coming back. He takes his family with him. We're following the king no matter what. And so David and his faithful followers cross the Kidron Valley. Kidron uh, just means black. It was a stream that flowed uh, down the edge of Jerusalem. It's actually a stream where a lot of the sacrifices, the blood would end up flowing into this uh, Kidron stream. That's why it was called the Black Stream, because regularly it would flow black uh, with the blood of the sacrifices. They cross the Kidron and head into the wilderness. It's almost a reversal of Israel, isn't it? As Israel crossed a river and came into the promised land, uh, following Joshua, now David and his people are leaving Jerusalem and crossing the stream into the wilderness. But we learn that they're not alone. We already know they're not alone from all the descriptions. His servants are going with him. His bodyguard is going with him. The Gittites are going with him. And then there's this ruckus behind him. They turn around and all of the Levites are following. The priests, the tribe of the priests, and they have the Ark of the Covenant of God with them. And there's just, I mean, in one sense, like, we'll focus on the, superstitious side of it in a minute, but first see the faithfulness and the the commitment of the priests. They're like, no, you're the anointed one. We will not stay with this false king. But we know, because we've read, at least several years ago, uh, 1 Samuel 4, And we saw how sometimes God's people used the Ark of the Covenant as sort of a a lucky charm. And they took it in the battle, and it didn't go very well for them. And while lucky charms may be magically delicious, they are not good, uh, good tools for worshiping God. And so uh, David first says, "Listen, take the Ark of the Covenant back. I'm not. I'm not going to give in to what we did before. I'm not going to." I mean, we're not doing that with God's ark. Just put it back. But his statement is amazing. He says, listen, if, if God chooses to bring me back, then I'll see not just the ark, but I'll see his, his dwelling place, the tabernacle again. But if all of this is happening because God has decided... I take no pleasure in you. Then let him do what seems good to him. Now, you and I might hear this, and it might sound just very fatalistic. 
David just throwing up his hands and resigning himself to be pushed along by an arbitrary and odd God. But this is David submitting himself to the will of a holy and yet very gracious God. David is submitting himself to God's will. He says, listen, I don't know why this is happening, but I do know that God is still in control and he can either bring me back or he may not bring me back, but we're going to follow him anyway. Now, submission to God's will doesn't mean let go and let God. Uh, This isn't what David is doing because, in fact, the very next thing he says is, now listen, as long as you're going back, you could be a help to me. You know, obviously, you two, the high priests, you two priests, like, like you're not going to be much help, but you've got two young sons. They're, they're pretty uh, athletic. I'm going to be out in the wilderness. I'm going to be at these places. You send word to me. Tell me what's going on. Help me understand. They set up this sort of underground railroad of, of information. So he says, listen, go back. So it's not just that he's saying, oh, well, whatever God wants to do. He's saying, well, yes, whatever God wants to do. And I'm going to be faithful also. And so uh, David sends them back with a mission, with a purpose. And then David ascends the Mount of Olives. This is right at the edge of Jerusalem. In fact, from the Mount of Olives, you can look out and see over Jerusalem, uh, but he, has, he ascends the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes. His followers are weeping. And as he, as he comes up the Mount of Olives, he learns of Ahithophel's betrayal. You know, he's, one of his closest men has betrayed him. And so he simply prays. He just prays, God Make his counsel foolishness. He's simply, he's on, he's on the top of the Mount of Olives. He's being betrayed. And he's saying, God, do your will. Don't let Ahithophel succeed. And isn't it interesting that uh, God answers his prayer immediately? Like, he doesn't answer it literally, but he answers the, uh, the, the gist of what David is asking for. He sends, uh, he sends his friend to him. Hushai comes to David. He's, uh, he's got his robes torn. He's got dirt on his head. It's the, uh, it's the standard stance for being in mourning. And so... Uh, David says, listen, you could, you could go back. So here's David realizing that here's the answer to prayer. So here's a, just a quick, because it has to be quick. Uh, when you are asking God for something, when you're praying, um, are you willing to be God's answer to your prayer? Like when you pray and ask God for things, are you, do you keep your eyes open to how, is God, how might God answer this prayer actually through me doing something? Because uh, sometimes we pray and we just want to sit back and, and ask God to just magically make it happen. 
Uh, here is David praying for God to do something and then acts toward that thing and sees that God has provided an answer in Hushai. And so uh, he sends him back because they've got this information railroad set up, but no means of finding out what Absalom is doing. He says, listen, just go back and tell him, you know, you served me because I was the king. Now he's the king, so you'll serve him. It's very pragmatic. And then just you can counter Ahithophel's counsel, and you can tell me what Absalom is up to. So what do we do? What is this? What are we going to do with this passage? I mean, this is only the beginning. It's going to take through like chapter 19 to even resolve this. But maybe, maybe you see David and you think, you know, this might be me. Maybe you look at David and you think, you know, I have, I have screwed up so badly. And I am sure that all of this, all of this, everything that's happening to me right now is proof that the Lord does not take pleasure in me anymore. Like these things that are happening in my life, they are proof that I have finally sinned against God one too many times. So first I would suggest to you, first of all, look around uh, and make sure you're not defining your life by the valleys when there are also peaks going on at the very same moment. Yes, there are people that are against you. Welcome to the world. Uh, there are people that are for you. Look at David. Look, I mean, in the amount of people that aren't going with him, the overwhelming sense of this passage is how many people are with and for David. He's not alone. The servants have gone with him. His bodyguard has gone with him. The Levites would have gone with him. See the ones whom God has put in your life and make use of them. See people who have made commitments to you. People who remind you of who God is. People who, there are some people who come and make bold and strong commitments like I am with you no matter what. There are others who come and will just sit and weep and pour ashes on their head with you and say, this stinks. This is awful. I mourn with you. You're not alone because God has not left you alone. Because more important than the people that God has put in your life, he's put them in your life so that you recognize that God has not left you alone. God is still with you. And he's still answering your prayers. And you can still, even as David wonders, perhaps God finds no pleasure in me anymore. And so he prays. And so he turns to God and he cries to him. Cry out to God and be prepared to take part in the answer to your prayers. But can't we look at this another way? Because David isn't just a model for us of, hey, we should be more like David. David is also in a very unique position as the Lord's anointed. The anointed one of the Lord, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word for anointed one is Christos or Christ. David is the anointed king. He is the Messiah king of Israel. And so here is the Lord's anointed, the rightful king, the one who has owed all allegiance, and along comes this other one, a usurper. 
an anti-anointed one, an antichrist. And he is beguiling, and he is sexy, and he is convincing. He is handsome and impressive when he needs to be, and he questions the authority and goodness of the anointed one. And he makes it all sound so pietistic and religious. And he tells you, listen, whatever you're going through, I'm for you. Like, I would never, I would never suggest you need to change your life. I would never suggest that you, like, uh, you have a good case for just you doing you. And, and I'm, I'm with you. I would like to help you do that. You have every right to define your happiness and pursue that happiness. And any king that won't allow that or won't help you or won't celebrate with you who you are, well, that king just isn't worth following. You should follow me. I mean, there are always whisperers who will say, like, that's not the right king to be following. That's such a hard road you're on. Looks like it might lead to death and difficulty. Will you turn your back on the anointed one? Will you be another close friend who betrays this anointed king? God sent his son, born of a virgin Mary, anointed to be the rightful king. And while some shouted and declared him king, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Hosanna. There were others who shouted and wanted him dead. Not the king. Not my king. And he also, after supper, went out with his closest followers and crossed the Kidron stream and walked up the Mount of Olives, and when he got to the top of the Mount of Olives, wept and prayed. Not my will, but yours. And he's betrayed by one of his closest. And he prays for salvation. He prays for his own deliverance, but he says, and yet not what I want, what you want. He was betrayed. He was crucified, not because of his sin. There was nothing that Jesus entered into that he looked back and said, this may be in answer to my sins. But he would look back and he would look forward and he would say, this is in answer to your sins. And the father would turn his back on his son. He would fall out of pleasure with the father, fall out of favor with the father for you and me. Will you follow him? Will you say with Ittai, whether to death or to life, I am with you? Will you align yourself under his reign and his rule? Will you humble yourself? Because you serve a humble king. There's no other king. Everyone else is a usurper. 
Will you follow the king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the right and anointed rightful king. The exile you went into, even in coming to earth, but especially at the cross and in death, you went into not because of any of your sin, but because of all of our sin. You indeed are great David's greater son. Lord, help us. It's times that we look at David and we see him in humility and think, well, he needs to be humble. He's got a lot to be humble about. And yet we look at you, Lord Jesus, and realize you have nothing to be humble about. And yet you came in humility. Would you grant us humble hearts to bow to you? To commit to you? And to receive from you your commitment to us that the steadfast love of the Lord would be with us and on us. All for your glory, Jesus. Amen.